1 Peter, um, chapter 1, 13 through 25. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him up from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. We got a dog about four months ago, uh, and her name is Ember. After losing our coon hound Zaxby, we felt a big dog-shaped hole in our household, and with special urging from Sarah, we got ourselves another furry companion a little bit earlier than I had planned. <laughs> we got her primarily to be a family pet, and she's great at that. However, when we were looking over the breeds, another, another motive emerged in my own mind. I wanted to get a bird dog so I could take up hunting. Ember is a German short-haired pointer. It's in her blood to go after birds. She's got the instinct. You, you take her out and we see her track birds and even point at them in the yard. I've got a picture up here of her uh, pointing at them. The picture's there. Um, oh. Yes, I don't know. There's, I'm feeling some things didn't update, but, uh, but yeah, she'll go out in the yard and she will just like stop and stalk and point at the bird. Um, but the thing is, is that instinct alone is not enough to make her good at hunting. This past Thursday, I took her to her first training session where she was introduced to quail. And uh, she went nuts just chasing them all over the woods. But she couldn't grab any of them. Um, even with their feathers wet by rain, the birds were too quick for her. 
It's all part of her learning, though. That's what the woman was telling me that, that does the training there. She, if she's ever going to get a bird, she'll need to learn that she can't do it on her own. She'll eventually need to learn to just point and stay still. And then when she does that, I'll be able to creep up and the bird will fly up. I'll shoot it out of the air. So then, then she can go grab it. She's been bred for a purpose, but she's not able to completely fulfill that purpose apart from me. As we continue in 1 Peter 1, we are reminded in verses 13 through 25 that God has a purpose for us that we can only fulfill in Him. Now, you remember in the opening verses that Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, um, several churches spread out across modern-day Turkey. And among the things that he tells them is that they've been chosen in Jesus Christ for obedience. And that this obedience that they've been chosen for to be obedient to God is something that flows from their salvation in Christ. And this salvation, which has been in the works for a long while, that the prophets longed to see, has now come. And now that it has come, now that it has been revealed, Peter now says in these verses here, starting in verse 13, that it, it's basically to kind of act as kind of a cold splash of, of water. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. So out of the salvation, therefore, we ought to have minds that are alert and fully sober. And if he's calling us to be alert and to be fully sober, that means that before this occurred, before salvation in Christ was revealed, we were not that. We were the opposite of that. We were like sleepwalking, as though we were drunk. And, and Paul characterizes it in just this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. See, our condition apart from Christ is a condition of, of drunkenness because the way that we try to find satisfaction is just by trying to consume more and more of this world. We try to imbibe ourselves on it, and, and we operate under the delusion that if we just gain enough, if we can attain enough, that we'll be truly satisfied. And, um, I was reflecting on this, and I think very often we, we approach life kind of in the terms of percentages. If we think about our happiness, I don't think any of us in here would say that we're 100% happy. Now, if you kind of think of it, some of us are probably over 50% happy. Maybe some of us, unfortunately, are under 50%. And we can think of a few things in our lives where it's like, I would be happier if this or that was happening in my life. 
And maybe, let's say you're at like 60%, maybe you think of that one thing, like I think I'd be happier if that happened. Maybe that'd bring you up to 75% or 80%. The question is though is, okay, what's gonna actually make you 100% happy? And very often I think we kind of leave God out of the equation, but then when we, when we introduce him into our calculations, certainly we wouldn't want to say that, okay, if I, if I get God, and by that I mean that I'm dwelling with God as I was created to be, that things are all as they ought to be in this world, that that's not just 20% more on my scale, and that just kind of puts it over the top. No. Our happiness that we find in God is of a whole other order of, of magnitude. Um, if you get God, everything else is going to pale in comparison. And I think it's safe to say that we do, we do have a special grace, a special relationship with God today, so that we do have a taste of that happiness, but we know that there is more to come as well. And when that more does come, when Christ returns and God makes his home here with us on earth, I think everything in our life that we look back on, those great disappointments that we had, are just going to be just so small in comparison. It'll, it'll be like the disappointment of going to a restaurant and them not having Coke and only having Pepsi or some, something like that. Um, and it's tough for us to fathom because we have some real disappointments. Like, I have disappointments in, in my own life where I was like, gee, I really wish this would happen. Um, and yet, I believe that in the light of eternity, that that's going to just be so, so small in comparison with the salvation that is to come. And this is the nature of our salvation. Um, you know, Paul, Peter says here that our hope is this. In verse 13, it's the grace to be brought to you when, Christ, when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Isn't that interesting? Because I think very often we, we realize the, the present nature of grace, that I come to Jesus, I believe in him, I'm forgiven. And yet, Peter's words here are looking forward to something which is to come, the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. And so we stand in this interesting position of kind of the now and the not yet. And in the not yet, we're looking at Christ's return. We're looking at the full satisfaction of all that we desire in God being realized. And all that awaits the last time. He said earlier in verse 5, he said, you'll recall that we're shielded um, who through, that we who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is re- ready to be revealed in the last time. So, so you have that future aspect of the grace. But there is a present aspect of that grace in our lives as, as well. In Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul speaks of how the grace of God has been revealed. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And notice what this grace does. It says, It teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age 
while we wait for the blessed hope. So you have the now, the grace is present, it's teaching us, saying, don't bother with that stuff. While we wait for the blessed hope, that future grace, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So this is the reality that we stand. We, we're in this period of waiting, but the grace of God, we're waiting for the full grace of God to appear, but the grace that we've received even now is teaching us to lay aside the distractions of this world, to not get drunk on this world, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and instead say yes to God and the righteousness that he's He's made possible in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that's now possible to begin coming forth in our lives because we've been joined to him. Paul gives this kind of instruction to Timothy. Now, Timothy was kind of his son in the faith, kind of his understudy, pastor in the making. And in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul has some interesting words um, speaking to Timothy about a time that is to come when things are going to be really crazy. And I think he'll, his description will resonate with you given the times in which we live. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5, he says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Isn't that what's going on in our society? People just want to hear what they want to hear and they put themselves in an echo chamber. And if you're not going to tell me what I want to hear, then you should be canceled. You should have no place in society. Only tell me the things I want to hear. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in verse 5. He says, but you... But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Keep your head. It's just another way of saying, stay sober. Don't, don't get drawn into their stuff. Also, don't get, you know, don't be overwhelmed either. Keep your head. Stay awake. Stay alert. Stay sober. The nature of the sobriety that we gain in Christ is that it's, it's intended to lead us into obedience in Christ. And so in verse 14, Peter says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So before we lived as kind of sleepwalking people, drunk people, we lived in ignorance. We now no longer live in that way because we've come to Christ. And so we are to no longer conform to those evil desires that we had. Now, if you're familiar at all with Paul's letter to the Romans, you'll notice that this sounds very similar to something that he tells them in Romans 12, 2, where he tells the Roman Christians, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
That's something that we have to realize is that Christ has come to renew our minds. He hasn't just come to get you a get-out-of-jail-free card from hell and punishment. He's come to make you a new person so that you'd have a new mind, so that you wouldn't be the same person that you were before. You go to Him, you die to Him, and you're made a new person. Because there's two patterns in life. There are the patterns of this world, and there's the pattern of God. And it's not a question of, you know, could you just do neither? No, you're going to. You will either conform to the ways of this world or you will conform to God. And the question is, to which will you conform? If you've come to Christ, if you've put your faith in Him, you're saying, I'm ready. I'm going to conform to Christ. I'm going to embrace this new life that He's offering me in Jesus. In a word... Peter says that we are called to be holy. In verse 15, he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Now what is, what is it to be holy? Holiness is to be, to be set apart, to be utterly different and above. And not just different for the sake of difference, but the best kind of difference. And this is the way in which God is holy. He's holy other from us as human beings in terms of our limitations and also our sinfulness. He is perfectly righteous. And what's incredible is, is that He's calling us to have that same sort of righteousness in our own lives. That we would reflect Him. It's like we're mirrors. We're not we won't ever be exactly like God. We're not going to be all-powerful or all-knowing or those things. Those things just belong to God. But the things that God wants to share with us is His goodness, is His righteousness, is His love. Those things should mark our lives. Now, when we hear that, you know, be holy because I'm holy, that can be pretty daunting. Um, when we look across the rest of Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, we see that, in fact, this is God's standard. In Leviticus 11.44, God tells the people, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And in the epistles to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 12.14, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So hearing that, we might be brought to kind of a point of despair. It's like, I cannot be as good as God. I am not holy. I'm a sinful person. You know, we kind of have the, the cry of Isaiah coming forth from us. I'm an unclean person living among an unclean people. But the good news is for us, our hope is, our assurance is this, is that this holiness does not come from ourselves. It comes from Christ. Now this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture because I think it, it captures the nature of the reality that has come to pass since Christ has been revealed. In Hebrews 10.14, the writer says, For by one sacrifice, he, talking about Jesus, for by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect Forever, those who are being made holy. 
For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Notice the, the dynamic there is that in Christ, covered by his sacrifice, we are made perfect in the eyes of God. From all eternity, God sees us through Christ. He says they're perfect. And yet, we are being made holy. But notice the, the nature of that. It's not something that we're doing. It's that we are being made holy in Christ. And it's like God sees the whole picture. So yes, we come before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness, who he is, what he has done. But the nature of the righteousness of Christ is not such that it's just kind of an artificial covering that he throws over us. No. Righteousness of Christ is such that he actually cleanses us and makes us into the sort of people that we're supposed to be. But it's his work, not ours. And the thing is, is that work will be brought to completion. And God sees the beginning from the end. He sees the day when you and I the desires of our heart will no longer be conflicted. They will be perfectly aligned so that we will be that holy people. It's not a myth. It's not playing make-believe as though we will be holy. We will actually be holy. Not because of us, because we're the great. It's because of Christ. Because he will have made us holy. We're going to be just like Christ. It's, it's an amazing thing to fathom. The Apostle John tells us this in 1 John 3, verses 2 through 6. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. So currently we are children of God. But then he says this, And what we will be has not yet been made known. So there's that not yet part. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Imagine that. We are going to be just like Jesus Christ. And I don't think that just means bodily, because we will share, we will have the same resurrection bodies as, his, as him. I think as people, as persons, we will be just like him. John continues, he says, All who have hope have this hope in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. So again, we see that we're working towards that purification. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know, know that he appeared so that he may take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So yes, Jesus has come to take away your guilt so that you're no longer held responsible for the sins that you've committed. He's offered the perfect sacrifice. But he's also come to take away your sinfulness so that you would no longer keep on sinning. And of course, we understand that that's something that is being worked out across the course of our lives. To the, to the very day that, to your last day when you're dying, you're still, that's still going to be working out, but it will be brought to completion. Because sin has no place before God. And so the very purpose for which Christ came was to make us a holy people people who are characterized by righteousness, who look just like Jesus. Unless we, you know, at any point, think like maybe it's kind of our, it's our part, you know, doing this, getting ourselves all right. Paul, 
Paul just makes it clear again and again that it's Jesus. In, in Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, he says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. So just like Peter's saying here, you were drunk, you were asleep, you were ignorant. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of, our, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not that He helped and, and we saved ourselves. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. God has shown His mercy to you in Jesus Christ, not because you're deserving, not because you're a kind of alright person. It's just out of pure mercy, pure love. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So we're justified in Christ, and we've been reborn. Again, we've been made anew so that we'd have new minds. And the Holy Spirit dwells within each one of you who believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, renewing you day by day. And so it's in light of our, this new relationship we, we have with God through Jesus, the reality that we are now the children of God, that Peter calls us to live in light of this reality in verses 17 through 21. And in verse 17, he, he characterizes the Father as this just judge, and that in light of him being this judge, just judge, um, who's impartial, we're to live out our time here as for, foreigners, and reverent fear. And we're going to take several passes here at this verses because there's, there's a lot to kind of chew on here. The first thing I just want to pick out here is this idea that we're living as foreigners. Again, we're not drunk on this world. We are in this world, but its ways are no longer our ways. And so by virtue of the fact that we are no longer conforming to the patterns of this world, its ways are no longer our ways, we are foreigners here. And so if you feel uncomfortable in this life and you just feel like, I feel kind of like a misfit, like a black sheep, good. That's how you're supposed to feel. If you feel comfortable in this world, something's wrong. Now, why is this to be so? You know, how did, how, why is it that we're supposed to live our, our time here as foreigners and in reverent fear? Peter says that it's because We've been purchased by Christ. We've been reborn in Him. Verse 18, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We did not purchase ourselves. It's not like I could have a stack of money and say, Okay, God, I've, I've purchased... I've redeemed myself. We can only be redeemed by the blood of Christ, by His life laid down for us. Peter talked about this earlier in verse 2, talking about how we're sanctified through the Spirit, how we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And so, this takes us back to verse 17. We see how we've been purchased in Christ, and we also see that God is a just judge. He judges impartially. And so if 
if God is this just judge, and if we've been redeemed in Christ, how ought we to live in response? How would God expect us to live in response? If he's bought us at a great price through the sacrifice of his son. Well, he would expect us that we would live holy lives. (laughs) That we would live as foreigners here. Now, again, I think we're always kind of tempted to be drawn to thinking like, okay, so like, do we need to kind of make ourselves right before God as though we're earning our way into God's kingdom? And I, I don't think that's, that's not the idea here. It's not that we're justifying ourselves. It's that we're taking seriously our salvation in Jesus. Because we know that there are going to be some who do not take that seriously, who pay all the lip service saying, yes, Jesus is Lord, I believe in him. And yet, on the last day, when they stand before Jesus, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. In John 10.27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. You can claim to be a sheep of Christ, but if you're not following him, you're not of his flock. But we don't ever work our way into his flock. We've been purchased, we've been bought, we've been brought into that flock by the sacrifice of Christ. And so we follow him, not because we're trying to earn anything, but just out of pure gratitude. You can think of it along these lines, I think. If you've had a good parent, and I hope all of you have had good parents, probably along the line, they've done something for you that you could never pay back. You kind of stand in, in their debt. But they don't expect you to pay them back. They just did it because they loved you. Now, in light of what they, they've done for you, how do you live? Do you just say, oh yeah, sweet, and then just kind of don't, you know, when they get old and they have struggles, do you not, do you say, oh, too bad for you? No. You live your life before them, with them, in gratitude. And I think that's the idea of reverent fear here. It's not this kind of fear of like, oh no, he's going to strike me down or something. I think it's with reverence. The sort of reverence that you would have for your parent in light of what they've done for you. And this idea of like, I never want my parents to think I'm ungrateful. Like my parents have done so much for me. I would never want them to think that I was ungrateful for all that they've done for me. And the question is, is do we think the same? Do we live like we don't want God to think that we're ungrateful for the great price that he purchased us at through his son, Jesus Christ? It's incredible. God has been... He's had our salvation through Jesus in his mind for a long time, from all of eternity. Verse 20, Peter says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these, these last times for your sake. So God has had these plans in the workings, but he's been wor- waiting, waiting, waiting so that we might be in- included. Now this is 
telling us something about Jesus here too. It, the fact that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world is suggestive of the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is divine. Not perfectly clear, but suggestive of that. And if you look elsewhere, Jesus makes those claims pretty clear. Um, in John 8, in the Gospel of John, in the very beginning, John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word is Jesus. So John's making that claim. But then Jesus, later in that Gospel, says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my days. He saw it and was glad. And then the religious leaders he's talking to say, You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. And then Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And that was an utter shock to the Jews that he was speaking to here because in saying that before Abraham was I am, he's saying that he pre-existed Abraham. He's also making the divine claim for himself, saying that he's the I am. So the point here is that God's been working here on this for a long time, and it's been revealed now in the last times for our sakes. Now, what's kind of interesting about that is even at this point, you know, we're talking about nearly 2,000 years ago, that time was characterized as the last time. So if you ask, are we living in the last times? We are. We've been living in the last times for 2,000 years. And this is a, a, kind of the point at which we have to take God's vantage point of things, where 2,000 years is nothing for God. And we are living in the end of the ages. Christ was revealed in the last time for our sakes because apart from Jesus, apart from Him, I would not have had faith and hope in God. It's because He's been revealed that, that I do any of that. It's because Jesus has been revealed that you believe and have faith and God. Otherwise, especially because most of us here are Gentiles, we're non-Jewish people, we'd be pagans. Who, knew, who knows what this world would be like? None of us would be alive, I can tell you that, because the church intersects with, a, with our genealogy too much. None of us would have been alive. Um, none of us would have believed in God. We'd be lost in our evil desires and ways. But now we believe because of Jesus. As Peter wraps up chapter 1 in verses 22 through 25, we see something very basic fall from this. In verse 22, he says, Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Now isn't that curious? He says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Kind of sounds like you're saving yourself, you're purifying yourself by obeying the truth. But we have to focus in on that, those words, obeying the truth. Well, what does that mean? I think it's just another way of saying faith. You go to the, the, the first, first John verse, chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, and John says this, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, 
to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Notice how belief in Christ is included in the command. So that believing in Christ could be characterized as obedience. That faith could be characterized as obedience. But it's a, it's a unique sort of obedience because as we believe, God has sent His Son in order that people might properly respond and believe in Him. And so we have faith, but we're having faith in Him because we cannot be perfectly obedient by our own efforts. But it's that, that obedience that we put our trust in Him and then a whole life of obedience follows from that so that our lives are progressively purified in him and so and we and we see Paul pick up on this the nature of this reality at the very end of his letter to the Romans in Romans 16:25 through 27 he says now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Notice how Paul, Paul says, the obedience that comes from faith. So we obey God by putting faith in Christ. And then from that faith that we put in Christ comes a whole life of obedience because we begin to bear fruit as we've been joined to Christ. And notice the, the fruit here that, that Peter picks out. Something very particular. So he says, now that you have been purified, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, and he says, so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. I don't know about you, but it's kind of a, a surprising follow-up there. You could almost imagine you know, him saying something like, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you love God, or so that you love his word, or so that you preach the gospel to all mankind, or so that pretty much like all kinds of other things that you could possibly imagine. But instead, Peter says, so that we have this sincere love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we are called to, to love non-Christians as well. Jesus even calls us to love our enemies. But there's a special love that we're supposed to share as a faith family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's second only to loving God himself. And notice how important this is to Peter here. He says we're, we have, that they have this love, but then he doubles down on it. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. Do we do that? This is no anomaly here. You know, Peter's instructions here. Paul says the same, talking about holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 7 through 10, he says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, 
the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And then notice how he follows that up, the discussion about holiness. It says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. More and more. Love each other even more deeply. And you ask, okay, well, what, to what depths ought we to love one another? Jesus tells us. I didn't put this one up here, so, this verse up here, so I invite you to turn. John 15, this is verse 12. And in the Pew Bibles, I think it's page 764. You know, when we think about Christ's commands that he gives to his disciples, we especially think about Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, where he says, go and make disciples. But this is right about the time that Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And he gives this, his disciples this command. In John 15, 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I think so often we, we fixate on verse 13. That's the verse that a lot of us are very familiar with. And we're like, this is great. You know, Jesus is talking about his death for us, and he's calling us friends, and he's laid his life down for us because he calls us friends. That's great. But notice the context here. He's saying that we're to love one another in just that kind of way. That we would lay our lives down for each other. That we are supposed to love each other as brothers and sisters, just as Jesus has loved us. And so this is a standing challenge for us. Do we have this sincere love for one another? Do we deeply love each other here in this church? Do we deeply love our brothers and sisters in other churches? Because I think it's easy for us to substitute a, a deep love with just being like nice or, or welcoming. It's kind of like a very shallow, plastic kind of love. But the kind of love that we're to have for each other is one of genuine care. And so, genuine care, deep love, does away with just mere superficialities. Because genuine love sometimes drives us to, to speak to one another that in ways that it, it could upset the person that we love. I don't think that's that crazy. Um, I mean, think about it. it. For those of you who have been, who are parents, who have been parents, you love your kids so much. Sometimes you've got to tell your kids things that they don't want to hear. But it's because of that deep love. In fact, the, the bad parents that we see are, are those that don't tell the kids the hard truths that they have to hear, and they're just like, ah, I want them out of my hair, and you know, they can just do what they want. Deep love is sometimes uncomfortable. But we're willing to be uncomfortable. We're willing for there to even be some friction at times because we truly love them. 
That's the sort of depth that we need to go to in this church, that all churches need, need to go to. And genuine love drives us to be together as the body of Christ. And, and, it, and if we don't have that desire to, to be with one another, to, to actually care about each other's lives, then we've got a serious issue. Because then our relationships really just look like the relationships of this world. There's nothing supernatural there. If we love each other to the depths that Peter is calling, then something truly miraculous is revealed. Because none of us, I mean, some of you are related to each other, but most of us here are not related to each other. We're drawn from all different walks of life. And yet we're called to love each other as brothers, as sisters, as family members. And until we love each other to the furthest depths that Christ has loved us, calling each other brother and sister is just going to come off phony. That's what the world thinks, I think, when they hear us call each other brother and sisters. They think, oh, that's kind of phony. You're not really brothers and sisters. But we are in Christ. And we need to prove that. We need to show that to a world that doubts. And until we go to those depths, we're not being radical enough. We're, we're still drunk on this world. We must see things as Jesus sees them. Matthew 24, verses 49 through 50. Matthew said, this is what Jesus said. Pointing to his disciples, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's what we must say of one another. Now all of this, this love, these relationships, all our holiness, all of this rides on this reality that we have been born again. That's what Peter says, for you have been born again. That's why all of this is happening. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, not of something that's from this world, but of imperishable through the living, enduring Word of God. And you'll remember Jesus in John 3 says that's what needs to happen, that we need to be born again. In his, in his letter, uh, James, in James 1.18, he says that God chose to give us birth through the Word of Truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that He created. When we think about the Word of God, there's kind of a a sort of duality here. We're thinking about God's promises, the written word. We're also thinking about the word incarnate because Jesus is that word manifest before us. The promises of God come to pass. And so when Peter starts talking about perishable seed and an imperishable seed, he, 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 makes, he starts making this allusion to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46 through 9, where the prophet writes, A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. 
You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Here is your God. Now it's interesting because this prophecy aligns with the revelation of Christ. Talking before this, talking about a voice cries, prepare a way in the wilderness. This, this points to the ministry of John the Baptist preceding the coming of Christ. And the message is here is your God, here is your salvation. And the salvation that we receive in Christ is something that's enduring. It's, it's nothing like this world has to offer. The withering word of man um, is just something to get drunk on, something that you can't have hope in. It's not durable. It's not enduring. Sometimes we can, we can doubt this, though, I think, when we do face hardships in this world. And, and I think it's important for us to kind of visit this chapter here in Isaiah 40, because at the very end... When kind of this, um, you have an anonymous person basically saying, you know, where's God? Why doesn't he comfort us? In Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31, the prophet says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will, not, they will walk and not be faint. We are those people. We are those people who hope in the Lord and whose strength is renewed. We are those people who are called to be holy because God is holy and who can be holy because we've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We've been born again to be a new kind of humanity. And this means that we are people who are sober in a world that is drunk. This means that we have become foreigners to the ways of the world around us. We belong to the way of Jesus. We've abandoned our evil desires. We've embraced righteousness. And the depth of our transformation is revealed by this. Our love for one another. This love is the signpost of our salvation because it's a supernatural love that does not begin with us. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Our love for one another is the canary in the coal mine. If we fail to love our Christian brother or sister, then we don't truly love God. This kind of hatred, this apathy, is the way of the world. 
is totally normal to the patterns of this world. The call that Peter is placing upon us is this, is do not conform to what is normal. By the power of Christ, conform to Christ. And so we must do this. We must deepen our love for one another here at Rockland Community Church. We need to deepen our love among the churches of Christ here in Situate. I think we need to do this because if, if we don't do that, I think the world is going to say you're a bunch of phonies. I think in order to show Situate the Gospel, I think we need to show them the miracle of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that begins in the love that we share for one another. For all of our brothers and sisters that we've gained because we've been born again in Him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would help us. That as we've come to believe in Jesus Christ, your Son, that through him, by him, we would no longer conform to the patterns of this world. But that rather, Father, we would be alert and sober. That we would live as foreigners here. That our ways, Father, would not look like the ways of this world. But that rather, Father, we would be a people marked by holiness. And that the iconic form of that holiness, Father, would show itself through our love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray, we pray, that we would love each other here as we ought to. That we would love each other just as Jesus has loved us. That you would deepen our love for each other here. I pray that you would deepen our, the love amongst our churches here in Situate. That we would work together to advance the gospel and that people would see the truth of the gospel by the fact that we do not compete with one another because we love one another. Because this is the work of God and not the work of man. Make that manifest, Father, here in our town, here in Rhode Island, Father, in our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. 
We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through First and Second Peter. It's our joy to welcome you.